Well, here at our church, here at Trinity, we believe in an interactive service. And to be honest, most churches do that. That's why we sing songs that everyone can sing and everyone kind of knows them. We don't do a lot of performance songs. We do a lot of songs to help us engage. But we take it even a step farther. We try not to make it too uncomfortable, even though we know it often is uncomfortable. But we have interaction during the message time as well. We'll often maybe ask you a question where you get to type your answers in chat and be able to tell us or your experience or your opinion. And you'll be able to shout out your answer here from uh, in this room and be able to say, you know, here's my thoughts or, or here's my experience. And we, we love to do that because it helps engage adult learning when we're able to participate and particularly sharing not just our opinions, but our experiences. We believe in this so strongly that in the pre-COVID world, decades and decades ago, I think at this point, in the pre-COVID era, we would often ask you to get into little small groups right in the room and encourage you to talk with those who you didn't travel from the same household with and maybe share an experience or share a story or solve a problem. Today, we want to do something similar to that, but entirely different. I want to give you a question that you need to answer for yourself. And to do that, I want to encourage you that if you brought a, a smartphone, to take that out. If you brought an iPhone, if you brought an Android phone, take that out. If you don't have a phone, then take out a piece of paper. If you don't have a piece of paper, then just raise your hand because we've got pieces of paper ready to give you because we want you to write down the answer to a question that uh, we want to ask you in a little bit. If you need to run and grab something uh, while you're uh, watching from home or for wherever you're watching, then go ahead and do that. If you're driving while you're listening, if you're listening to the stream while you're driving, you get a pass. You don't have to do any writing or pull over the car and start to look for something where you can take notes. Does anybody need some paper here in the room? Take a couple of seconds online. Just raise your hands if you need something. Uh, This is super important because we want you to be able to participate, not during the service, but to do something with this after the service. So raise your hand and get ready to answer this question. What's the most loving thing someone has ever done for you? What's the most loving thing that someone has ever done for you? And write that down. It doesn't have to be the full story. It might just be a couple of words where you're like, it was this event, it was this moment, it was this thing. And if you can't remember what the most loving thing someone has ever done for you, you can edit the question a little bit and you can answer uh, what's something that someone did for you that you know was out of love. It doesn't have to be the most loving thing if you can't remember that. But if you do know what the most loving thing was, then I want you to write that down because that's going to help us as we look at God's word today. So write that down. Take a couple of seconds. You can hum the Jeopardy theme song in your mind to know how much longer you have. You all know it. We can't play it due to copyright, but just hum it in your head and you know we'll all finish at the exact same time because that's how you know, those kinds of uh, memory triggers work. What's the most loving thing someone has ever done for you? And then just take that, fold it up or put it away and put it aside. Don't show anyone. Don't show the person next to you. Don't share it with anyone. It's just for between you and the Lord. 
What's the most loving thing someone has ever done for you? Does anyone still need time? Everybody got something written down? A quick little jot something? Anyone need time uh, online? Uh, If you need to uh, do that, then uh, take just a couple of moments. And let me just ask some things that I think uh, may have guided your answer. Without a show of hands, without answering in any way, did you write down a gift? Was it a memory of a surprise visit from a long-lost friend, maybe a childhood friend who you hadn't seen for forever, and they showed up at uh, your anniversary or your birthday, or they showed up at a special event, they showed up maybe at your retirement party from work, or they showed up at the arrival of your first child. They didn't stay with you, thankfully, but, I mean, they're good friends, but they're not crazy. What was it? Was it maybe a handwritten note that your mom or your dad slipped in your lunch when you went to school, and they would always encourage you? Or maybe it was a note that you received from your fiancé on your wedding day before you went to the church to get married? What was it? What was the most loving thing that someone has ever done for you? You've got that written down? Tucked away? And here's what I'd like you to do with that. Sometime today, after our service is concluded, if it's possible, I would like you to go to the person who did that loving thing for you. Tell them that you loved what they did and tell them that you love them. Can you do that? Can, we don't, I don't think we have to swear in church, but I solemnly swear that I won't forget the piece of paper like the emails that we talked about earlier. But I will go and I will tell the person, if possible, if they're still with us, that, hey, a long time ago or recently, you did this for me. It was an act of love, and I love that you did that, and I just want to say I love you. I'm so glad that we have this uh, relationship, marriage, friendship, uh, that we're in the same family, whatever the connection is. After service, tell the person that you loved what they did and that you love them. That's your homework. So thanks so much for coming. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) Now, why, why did we do this exercise? I think if we were to collect all of the answers and didn't have anybody's names on them or couldn't identify anybody's handwriting, I think we'd see that there would be a wide range of specific things that people do in the name of love, right? But there would be two common things that you would see in each and every one of them. There would be two common things when it comes to the most loving thing someone has ever done for anyone. The first thing is that it would be for something personal. Like it doesn't have to be big and gargantuan. It can be something personal, but it has to be something specific that you appreciated and that they took the time to do. I mean, there's no sense getting a gift for, some, uh, a gift for someone that they wouldn't appreciate if that's what they did right? There's no point in putting a note in someone's lunch if they don't like to read. If they don't, they skip their lunch all the time. What would be the point of that, right? So, you know that it has to be something personal. 
And the second thing I think we would see, the second thing I think in common out of all the loving things people have done for us is that they would be sacrificial. Does that make sense? They would be personal and they would be sacrificial. What I mean by that is that you would know that the person who did this for you is making a sacrifice to do it. And secondly, the person who is doing this for you, who is showing you this great act of love, would also know this is a great sacrifice. And you'd never have to talk about that, but you'd know that that would be the case. I think there's a reason why at every wedding there are wedding vows. Without you know, asking you if you remember the wedding vows that you gave. In the traditional form of vows, people will say for better or for worse. They will say in sickness and in health. Why? Because that's what love does. It sacrifices for the other person, the spouse, no matter the circumstances. I don't just love you if you're healthy. I don't just love you if you're rich. I love you if you're not rich. I love you if you're not healthy and I'm going to be there and I'm going to uh, care for you and we're going to make it through this journey together. That's why those vows say that. And if you are a couple who wrote your vows personally and read them to each other, my hunch is that you didn't allow the other person to know what you were going to say until the actual ceremony. Because you wanted to tell them deeply, this is what it means for me to care for you. This is what I am promising to do for you. This is how I am promising to love you. And it won't just talk about, I'll only love you if these following conditions are met. Those would be pretty bad vows, right? But they tell you, this is how I will love you regardless of our situations. Here's my vow to you. When I think of love like that, I think of love that parents have for their kids who sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice from as soon as they're born, they give up sleep so that a child can eat, that a child can be comforted, that a child can be changed and made clean. And that doesn't stop. It seems like there's this mystical number of, hey, the kids are 18, and now they're gone from the house and they're adults. But that's not true. Parents whose kids are older, you know that's not true. When they come back, you still want to pour out to them. You want to love them. Even to the point where you're gone, you want to leave them a legacy. A legacy of, of an inheritance, but a legacy of a model and an example to follow of what it means to love Jesus. You do that. So if these two commonalities are correct, that it has to be personal and it has to be sacrificial, let me ask you one more question. What is the greatest example of love that we could ever see and know? If it's got to be personal and it's got to be sacrificial, what is the greatest example of love that we could ever know. Jesus Christ. And specifically, Jesus on the cross. Because when we look at his death, we see a level of sacrifice that, quite honestly, I can't fathom. 
that any of us would go through for someone else. And we see a level of personal benefit that we could not imagine in any other way. Especially when we remember what just happened to Jesus last week. Do you remember what we talked about last week? We talked about how to remain faithful when following Jesus was going to cause suffering in our lives. And we talked about the comparison of Jesus, how he remained faithful to the cross and he prepared for that versus how Peter prepared for that. Peter failed to pray. He failed to develop intimacy. He leaned on the, the, the big worship moment, the big, here's the big thing, here's the communion thing that we had, rather than developing an intimate personal relationship with God. And every one of Jesus' followers ran when he was arrested. Even Peter, who said, no, Lord, I will not betray you. It will not happen to me. I could never deny you. And Jesus said, it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, you're going to do it a number of times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And when we consider what Jesus went through to get through the cross, that's where we see the kind of love that he has, especially after all of the people who said they loved him betrayed him and ran for their lives to save their own skin. The greatest example of personal, sacrificial love is found in how Jesus acts after everyone betrays him. Let's take a look at what he endured in order to pay the penalty for our sins. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15, in the first verse, we read this. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. In this scene, we see a 
number of accusations that Pilate didn't believe. When people come and they say, you know, let's, let's take a couple of, maybe it's your kids. No, probably not your kids. It's probably someone else's kids. Someone else's kids in a family get into a fight and they run to mom and dad and they say, you know, what did so-and-so do? And the one person said, well, they did this and they're 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 this. You know that one of the roles of mom and dad is to filter out what some of the things that the child is just making up and is offended by versus what is it that the other brother or sister actually did? What was the legitimate thing? I think Pilate's doing that as the, as the religious rulers come and say, Jesus did this and this and this and he's a meanie and he's, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and he's just like, okay, all right. So, I don't see a problem here. But the crowd comes and they say, we want you to do the standard release of a prisoner that you always do as a sign of, of good faith, a good gesture to us on our, on our Passover celebration. We want you to uh, give us someone. And Jesus says, or um, Pilate says, well, I'll release to you uh, the man that you call the king of the Jews. Because... In Pilate's mind, Jesus had not done enough to be crucified. And yet, the religious rulers turn on the Son of God. And they demand that He be crucified. And they stir up the crowd to get Him to be crucified. And what does Jesus say? nothing. He doesn't stop them. This is the same man who said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And yet he remains silent. And he remains silent to the same crowd that in less than a week ago was welcoming him into Jerusalem crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were welcoming him as the Messiah. And in less than a week, they were demanding that he be crucified. I don't know if you've ever been condemned by a group of people who just wanted to punish you. Who just wanted to make trouble for you. I think we see that more and more as people maybe say something that might be taken in an offensive way on social media. There tends to be attack mobs that come and just sort of condemn without knowing the reason or knowing the person. They just, they just come and say, absolutely, and there's this big dog pile that happens. And then when that happens, people don't tend to be silent. They tend to respond and say, no, this is what I meant. This is a clarification of my position. Or, no, you're treating me unfairly. You're taking my quote out of context. And all of those kinds of things. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He endures the unfair condemnation and judgment by the mob. But he wasn't just condemned under false accusation, was he? It gets worse for Jesus because we read on what the soldiers did to him. The skull, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. 
skipped a few verses here because of what happens to Jesus from the soldiers. We see part of what they did. But the other part is not the part that you hear in Sunday school. It's not what you hear in tack kids or kids church. Because the soldiers in verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers, which is about 400 soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twist, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. The closest thing I can think of um, of anything in our current time that would be like this would be the punishment of a prisoner uh, in a way that was inhumane. Or hazing in the military, back when the military did hazing and some of those stories. Um, I think there was a movie that was made about something similar to that. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, endured from 400 soldiers. He was absolutely shamed and humiliated. I've never experienced shame and humiliation like this. Not many of us have. But he did, and he did nothing. I don't like um, pain. And yet here he was given a crown of thorns put on his head that was beat into his skull with a staff. They mocked him, bowing before him, spitting on him. Why didn't Jesus respond? The soldiers valued his clothes more than him. And I don't think they were doing it because, hey, we need a new wardrobe. You know what I think they were doing? They wanted a memento. They wanted to have something to say, here's my collection of things I did when I was a soldier. And how awful. In any era, it would be to take the clothes of a prisoner just to have a piece of what happened to him. And yet Jesus does nothing. Jesus, the Son of God, could have called on God at any moment and asked for a company of angels to come. And in a fight, who you got? A company of Roman soldiers, 400, or a legion of angels? Who you got? 
Who's going to win? Jesus could have immediately said, enough! How dare you treat your creator like this? And in an instant, everything could have changed. And yet, in the middle of that beating, that humiliation of that mocking, he does nothing. And you know what happened because he didn't act? Let me show you. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. <laughs> he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. When Jesus said nothing, when Jesus didn't act in his defense, when Jesus tried to prevent, if Jesus, because he did not defend himself and step off of the cross, he was declared a fraud. He was declared a phony because that's not what the Messiah would do. You aren't saving yourself, therefore, how can you be the Messiah? Sure, you talked a good game, but look at you now. When the, when the chips are down and you're up there and we're down here, where's your power? They taunted him and they declared him a fraud. I don't know if you've been with us for our series in the Gospel of Mark. We started back in September of 2020. And we have taken breaks here and there uh, after Easter and in the summer and things like that. But it has been our dominant primary series for the last year and a quarter. And if you remember, it doesn't take much to flip back through the pages and to go back and listen to some of those messages and see what God did through Jesus Christ. The teachings that he provided, the miracles that he performed in just under three years. And now they're saying, that's not enough. That's not enough. If you can't step off the cross now, if you can't save yourself, then that's proof that you are not the Messiah. You are a fraud. I can't imagine any of those things. To be condemned by the ones who just welcomed you into the city of Jerusalem. To be humiliated. He loves. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. I can't imagine feeling forsaken, knowing he was forsaken by his Father. Using sanctified imagination a little bit, I can guess as to what happened. Jesus came fully man, fully human. And the empowerment that he received to do God's will, to perform the miracles that he did, was all through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. My hunch, this is Brianology, it's not theology. (laughs) My hunch is that the Holy Spirit left him. Much like the Holy Spirit left Saul. Much like the Spirit of God left Samson. And they felt alone. But even more so than that, that's just the way I think of what happened. What Mark is trying to detail to us without explaining how it happened is that the Trinity, the perfect union, the perfect Godhead of three in one is no longer for a moment in time. As God the Father turns, the back, turns His back on God the Son. He is separate from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is alone. I can't imagine what that would be like. To not know God's presence. To not know God's indwelling Holy Spirit. I to not know his call, his whisper, as if he had been shunned. And the devastation of this, after all that he has endured from the mocking, from the scorn, from the harassment, from the ridicule, from the humiliation, from being declared a fraud, from being condemned by the people that just welcomed him, this, when God turns his back on the sun. He dies. With a loud cry, he dies. And the centurion says, this man, nobody dies like this. Surely this was the son of God. And the thing that is so amazing to wrap our minds around is, is that the son of God allowed this to happen. Why? Why did he go through this condemnation? Why did he go through this humiliation? Why did he go through being declared a fraud? Why did he go through this rejection from his father? Because he loved the people that were doing this to him. And he loved them so deeply and so much that he endured it all 
in order to pay for us all. He knew that his death would save them from eternal separation from God. What happened when Jesus died? The temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And if you're unfamiliar with what that veil was to the uh, Jewish people, that veil was to protect people from going into the Holy of Holies, where God's covenant rested. The Ark of the Covenant was there. It was to keep people from treating lightly that they were sinners and that God was a holy God. And no one could go in except for the high priest once a year who would take the blood of the sacrifices and he would sprinkle it at the Ark of the Covenant in order to ask for forgiveness of the sins of the people. And that only happened once a year. But they had an interesting practice back then. They would tie a rope around the high priest. Because if something happened, if he were to be judged unprepared or unworthy or was taking lightly the holiness of God and God were to strike him dead, then how do you go in and retrieve the body? They would have to pull the body out. And that tells me something. There were high priests in Israel's history that had done exactly that and who God had judged immediately in the moment. How dare you enter into my holy presence without being repentant? And they were judged and they were killed and this was their solution was to tie a rope. That veil that divided the people from access to God's presence personally was torn in two because it was no longer needed because of the death of Jesus. There is no more barrier between God and all people because of Jesus. The most amazing love that you and I can ever see is the kind of love that is personal. It does something for us. It's beneficial for us. And it is the greatest sacrifice. And we see that from what Jesus had to endure in order to die for us. The most amazing love is found at the cross. He was willing to take it all in order to pay for us all. And I think... I know, I am convinced that the only appropriate response is to draw near to the one who loves us so much. Remember that piece of paper where you wrote down the most loving thing someone has ever done for you? Remember the homework? What did we say the homework was? You're going to take that piece of paper and if possible, you're going to go to the person who did that loving thing to you. You're going to tell them, hey, do you remember when you did this? I loved that. That is so, was so meaningful for me, and I love you. That's how we're going to close our service today. By telling Jesus that we are in awe of what he did for us. And that we love him. I'm going to give you a chance just to pray where you are. To thank Jesus for what he did. And to express in your own way 
how you love him. And that's how we'll close our service today. Let's bow our heads and let's say thank you to the Lord who loved us so much. Lord Jesus, the sacrifice that you were willing to give, enduring the judgment, the condemnation, the shame, the humiliation, being declared a fraud, and the Father turning his face away shows us how much you love us. And the cross is the greatest example of the most loving thing that someone could ever do for us. Thank you for that wonderful gift in which we have the forgiveness of sins, freedom to enter into the presence of God, to draw near to him. We are in awe of your sacrifice and we are in awe of you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.